Well, let me encourage you to have your Bible open, if you have it with you, at 1 John and chapter 4, as we look at the opening six verses of that chapter. The desire of John's heart as he wrote this letter is that those who are Christians should have full assurance that they are indeed saved children of God. Do you know that you are a saved child of God this morning? That is John's great desire, that you might not have any doubt. Now, some of you here have never really had any great struggle with issues of assurance and perhaps to some degree find it difficult to understand how anyone can have struggles with the issue of assurance of salvation. But actually, having such struggles can be quite common. And it can be particularly common when there are many, many different voices to be heard across the wider Christian church, which are all telling you different things about what it means to be a Christian and placing emphasis on different areas. And when that happens, confusion and doubt can easily arise. As if we don't already have enough to deal with, with the doubts that can arise just within our own hearts. Uh, some having a, quite a sensitive conscience, as we looked at in uh, verses 20 and 21 of chapter 3 last week. Uh, some people convincing themselves that I am such a, such a poor specimen of a Christian often perhaps because of something that they perceive within themselves to be a particular area of weakness or failure. And they wonder at times whether, am I really saved at all? More people than you think have such difficulties at one time or another. John wants to help us find a safe route through all of these kinds of things. To understand that if you can see these three clear areas in which God has so obviously changed you, then you can be assured in your own heart that you do indeed belong to Christ because the fruit of his work within you is there. At the same time, there'll be others sitting in church congregations who need to have it brought home to them that they are not saved. Maybe that is you this morning, that you are not a Christian and that you might earnestly consider your position before God if at the moment you are outside of the family of faith, but that you too, through repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, may have these same assurances. Now, the Christian, compared to how things used to be, finds three major areas of change in his or her life. They have a very distinct attitude and view and understanding and response to Christian truth or doctrine. You are convinced by and you trust in the word of God and supremely in its message of salvation as it is found in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and in everything that the Bible reveals and teaches about Christ. In that area in particular, you are convinced and you trust in those things. You, you trust your life and all of eternity to those truths about Christ and his gospel. And it shows in obedience. The conviction and trust in the truth that you have translates in practice into a changed life. You become, as Jesus put it, not just one who hears the word, but one who does it also. In saying that, of course, it's important to acknowledge and stress that such a change can only occur in someone when God's spirit has been at work within them, bringing about new birth and new life and to whom the gift of faith has been given. But your life changes. That new life will show itself and it will always show itself in ad adherence and obedience to God's truth. And, and that is evidenced, as John also emphasises in this letter, it's evidenced by the outworking of righteousness. It's an obedience in righteousness in the life of a Christian. And the third thing is love. It's, it changes the issues of the heart. There's a love for Christ. Supremely, there's a love for Christ. But there's also a love for the church and a commitment to the church. There's a love for God's people and a commitment to God's people. A love and a commitment that you don't find in someone who's not a Christian. A giving and active and selfless love. Because these are family and this is home for the Christian. And you begin to feel it. You hurt them, you're hurting me. It's a love which protects and which nurtures and which fosters and which grows. And these three things are, are marking out the life of the Christian. Now, of course, these are things which we grow in. We don't get them all in full measure the moment we're converted. Indeed, we don't get them all in full measure until we're glorified in, in eternity with Christ. But we're growing in them day by day. Whenever you hear the world speaking out against any of these things, because the world hates these things, says John, you know which side you're on. You do. You know you're not on the world's side anymore. You know you're on Christ's side. And John makes a point of going back and forth across these three marks, which are all found in a genuine Christian. Now, why does John do this? Why isn't one John as short as two and three John? Why does John find it necessary to keep going back over these things and to look at them from different angles and from different points of view? Well, because these are issues, I, I, I suggest, that we find it we're slow to learn. These are issues that we're slow to learn. And these are issues that we soon forget. And John wants to really make us grasp these things and have that assurance. But it's important to remember that all three of these things that John is talking about are really important. And so, for example, if you're a Christian who says, well, it's all about love. It's just love that counts. And in saying that, you're dismissive of truth and doctrine 
Well, you're a Christian with a problem, if that's you. Uh, Likewise, if you're all consumed with dotting every I and crossing every T in doctrine, I do know there's only one I and one T in doctrine, but you know what I mean, crossing every I and dotting every, every T, but there's no evidence of outworking love, well, you too have a problem. Because all three of these things go together in the life of a Christian. At the beginning of chapter 4, John turns again to the topic of truth. But in doing so, he's going to address another important aspect concerning truth. And what he says here is again a source of encouragement and assurance for Christian believers in the area of truth. But it's also a warning for us, and it's a warning that we need to be careful to heed. He returns to the danger posed by false teachers. And I want us to break down this short passage of six verses into three headings. Uh, And let's take heed of what John wants to teach us this morning from this short passage. First of all, John points out the extent of falsehood in verse 1 beloved do not believe every spirit but test the spirits whether they are of God because many false prophets have gone out into the world this is not a little side issue it is a big issue it is a big problem it is a big danger it is a threat to your spiritual good it's a threat to your faith, because many have gone out. There will be many false teachers. Error across the Christian community will always be rife. There will always be lots of error being taught across the general Christian community. And there will always be Christians who are far too gullible. Be careful, says John. There will be many who are led astray by spirits. It's the work of the evil one against Christ's church. Listen to Paul when he wrote his first letter to Timothy at chapter 4. Now the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits, And doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Within the church, one of Satan's most popular and successful tactics is to turn truths into half-truths. To twist and distort the word of God. To twist and distort the gospel not to come up with something that is completely brand spanking new, but to twist what already is there. John MacArthur talks about Satan employing the three Ds, doubting God's word, distorting God's word, and denying God's word. That's what false teachers do. They sow doubt, they distort, and they deny the word of God. And many of these false teachers will use Christian vocabulary. 
so that a cursory listening, it sounds Christian. They use biblical terms and phrases so that it sounds biblical. But they are not teaching Christian biblical truth. And John knows that was the case in his day. And that's why it's such a danger. Now, many Christians, of course, out of a sense of not wanting to be divisive or judgmental. Now, that's a good thing. Not wanting to be divisive and not wanting to be too judgmental. That's a good thing. But to have that and accept those who claim to be and sound as if they are speaking God's truth when they are not, that obviously is not a good thing. And John, like the other apostles, is all too aware that there are far too many false teachers and they can be so prominent, they can even be so popular that Christians can let their guard down. Just because, so, just because someone claims to be a Christian teacher, just because others consider them to be a Christian teacher, just because they sound like a Christian teacher is not necessarily sufficient grounds for you to accept them as a Christian teacher. Not necessarily. All through the Bible, from the Old Testament into the New, God is constantly warning his people about false teachers. In the Old Testament, of course, they're normally referred to as false prophets. Why do we find these constant warnings? Because it's such a big problem and it's such a grave danger. Uh, read the opening. We're not going to do it. Make a note of it if you want to. Read the opening three verses of Deuteronomy 13 and the closing three verses of Deuteronomy 18. And there you'll find God warning Israel about those who presume to speak in his name when God has not given them anything to say. Now that kind of sums up a false teacher. Someone who is presuming to speak in God's name, but God actually hasn't given them anything to say. And God's judgment against such a person? Humour them? Put up with them? No. Put them to death in the Old Testament. Put them to death. That's how big an issue it is with God. So it's serious. So we can't make it not serious. Those kinds of warnings are repeated all through the Old Testament. And you see, it is not a Christian virtue to be gullible when it comes to the truth. Because we have an enemy who is doing his level best to sow doubt, to bring in distortion and to deny the truth of God's word. One of the reasons we have to exercise such great care is because John and Paul and others in their day can testify many times over that in the New Testament, certainly, the majority of those false teachers began life in regular churches. That's where they began. John says, the end of verse 1, 1 John 4, 
These false prophets have gone out into the world. Gone out? Well, he's already said early in the, earlier in the letter, they went out from us. They were among us, but they've gone out from us. They started here in the church, but they've gone out. Paul writing to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4, they departed from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits. They used to be here, sat in these chairs, but they've gone out. That's what John and Paul both taught. And sometimes when we talk about these kinds of things and these kinds of dangers that the Bible gives, brings to our attention, I'm sometimes concerned when Christians I've spoken to on these issues, their response seems to be along the lines of, well, yes, I know the Bible says that, but you don't really think that happens today, do you? Time to open your eyes. In Acts chapter 20, there's a well-known passage in which Paul is addressing the elders of the church in Ephesus. Church elders. Now, surely, a church elder, now there's someone who's not going to fall away from the faith. <laughs> really? He says to them, take heed to yourselves. Why does he say that? He's already seen too many in that position who didn't. And they're now nowhere. Be diligent in your walk of faith. Be diligent in your walk with Christ. <clears throat> Why? Because quite a few false teachers in New Testament days were once Christian church leaders. Paul knows it. John knows it. It's a big problem. It's a great danger. And then he tells them, and take heed to the flock. Because one of their main responsibilities as elders is to protect the church from false doctrine. Why? Because savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, said Paul to Timothy. Savage wolves will come in among you. Notice, among you. Jesus said exactly the same thing in Matthew chapter 7 towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Wolves, and they will come in, but when they do, they'll look just like a sheep. You will have no idea it's a wolf. Not at first. Which is why Peter, third of the apostles who talks specifically about this, this issue, he says in 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 1, they will secretly bring in destructive heresies. It begins as a trickle. And we don't worry about the trickle, do we? But then the floodgates will open. So you see, the apostles talk about this as a widespread and far-reaching problem across the church. The extent of false teaching it's a grave, grave danger. So we likewise need to be vigilant. We need to be diligent. We need to be alert and on our guard as Christian people. And those last few verses I quoted lead on to our second point, which is about the nature of falsehood. And John addresses this a little in verses 2 to 5. And this is not an exhaustive uh, 
paper on the nature of falsehood. It's only a couple of verses. But he draws out some very important things in these verses. We've seen that as far as individual churches are concerned, we need to be on our guard because false teaching that comes into a church always begins by stealth. It creeps in. We haven't even realised it's here. So we need to be careful. That's the nature of it. You see, if Satan come in and cause a church of Christ to wander off in its doctrinal position, he will have the biggest smile on his face. So often it begins in churches, it creeps in. When a false teacher first walks into a church, they don't walk in with a big arrow over the top of their head as they make their way to the seat. False teacher, false teacher, false teacher. It doesn't happen like that. They're nice people. They just look like the rest of us. And the apostles have seen how this has happened in churches that they know. The truth begins to get distorted and twisted. And John points out one very specific aspect of falsehood. This was a very big problem in the early church and it concerns what is taught or what is not being taught regarding the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now this was a particular issue uh, in New Testament days. The truth regarding Jesus being both God and man, that he is God come in the flesh, two natures in one person, that the eternal word being fully God became flesh whilst at the same time not losing any of his deity. This is one area where falsehood will often be seen. And one of the major problems that was confronting the early church, all kinds of theories and alternative views were creeping in. Well, for example, he was just an ordinary man and when he was baptised, we thought about this during the week, and the Holy Spirit came upon him, at that point, God indwelt him by his Spirit in a very special and unique way. But he wasn't God, he's just a man with a very special anointing of the Holy Spirit so that he can represent sinners. That's one of the teachings that came into the early church. But it's wrong, it's very wrong. And all kinds of other things too. But at the same time we recognise that there's more to it than whether or not you believe about what Jesus, uh, what actually happened when he came in the flesh. Because if you just glance down to verse 6 at the moment as well, we also see that John talks about those, those who are of God, who hear us. And by us, He's talking about the apostles, apostolic truth, apostolic teaching. Those who are of God hear us. Those who do not hear us are not of God. So it's about those actually who embrace all that the apostles were teaching. All the doctrine that was laid down by the apostles is actually covered by that little phrase in verse 6. And it makes sense, you see, the doctrine that Christ came in the flesh is not an isolated, fascinating fact which has no bearing upon anything else, is it? It isn't, it's central to the whole thing. 
the truth of Christ as God incarnate who came to be our sin-bearing substitute fits within a, a much larger body of truth which was taught by the apostles. If you change that one truth, it immediately starts to have an impact on all the others. I was once watching a programme on TV. There's quite a few of these kinds of programmes now. Someone was modifying a car and they decided they, they wanted to put a different engine in it, a more powerful engine. Easy. Not easy. Because the new engine was a different design, a different shape, a different size. And all kinds of other items had to be modified and adjusted in order to accommodate the new engine. Now it's the same with Christian doctrine, you see. You change that, ah, but now I've got to tweak this to try and make them fit. And now that I've tweaked this, I've got to now tweak this one slightly so that I can fit those two. And so you go down the line, tweaking things. And it all began because you changed this over here. You see, this, this grand central truth about the incarnate God in the Lord Jesus Christ lies right at the heart of the gospel. That this is God who has come to be sin for us. So that it's like in the Old Testament where it actually talks about God becoming salvation for us. You start to meddle with that truth. And the whole gospel gets distorted and twisted. So, for example, if Jesus is not a man, how can he stand in the place of sinful men and women if he is not a man? How can he be man's substitute if he's not a man? If Jesus is not eternal and infinite God... How can he pay an eternal and infinite penalty in just three hours on the cross if he's not infinite and eternal God? If Jesus is not a sinless man, how has he perfectly kept the law of God given for men in order that we might obtain his righteousness? And if Jesus is not man then that throws Paul's teaching about his resurrection into absolute chaos. If Jesus is not a man who rose from the dead, what hope is there for us for a resurrection? You see, it, it has a knock-on effect in all kinds of ways, and the whole gospel starts to disintegrate if we abandon that one truth. When you begin to modify what you teach about Christ, as Steve Chalk notoriously did over a decade ago regarding penal substitution, the gospel you preach will change. And if Satan can get people to believe in a Jesus Christ which is not the Jesus Christ of the apostles' doctrine, and if Satan can get people to believe in a gospel which is not the apostles' gospel that they taught and preached, well, he's more than satisfied because you're not a Christian. You've been deluded and deceived. You think you are, but you're not. And we notice in these verses that hand in hand, hand, in hand with modified truth comes worldliness in verse 5. They are of the world. 
Therefore, they speak as of the world. Now, they are really important phrases. They are very, very helpful. The message they proclaim is of the world. They speak as of the world. In other words, they preach a message which ungodly and unsaved people find attractive and acceptable. They tell unsaved people what unsaved people want to hear. That is not the same as telling unsaved people what they need to hear in order that they might be saved. They employ the methodology of the world. They use the presentation styles of the world. They present themselves as of the world. Who do? False teachers do. That is a mark of a false teacher. They are as of the world, says the word of God. Mark them and be wary of them. And here's a grave warning for any Christian who believes that in order to reach people with the gospel, we have to change it in a way that unbelievers will be attracted to it and that unbelievers will find it acceptable. A sinful man or woman, you see, will never find the gospel attractive. A sinful man or woman will never find the gospel acceptable. What happens is God works a miracle of saving grace in a sinful man or a sinful woman so that the gospel becomes acceptable, so that Christ becomes attractive. We don't change the gospel. God changes the sinner. That's how you were saved. God changed you. He brought you from darkness into light. He illuminated your heart and mind with the light of the gospel and you saw the glory of Christ like you never saw it before, like you could never see it lost in your sins ever. God changed you and brought you to the gospel. We don't change the gospel to try and take it to them. We've got it the wrong way around if that's how we're thinking. God changes sinners that they might come. That's how the gospel works. And this is John's whole point in this letter. The proof that you are a Christian is the great change that God has worked in you. The proof that you're a Christian is the great change that God is continuing to work in you. You've changed. You're not like the world. You know you're not in your heart. Up here, you know. God's changed me. Has he? Well, finally, more briefly, as we come to a, draw to a close, John talks about discerning this falsehood. How do we know? Well, he's already given us some big clues, hasn't he, as how we can know and how we can tell. But you are of God, says John, and you must not be gullible when it comes to the truth. And verse 1 and 6 really help us with the issue of discerning. Christians exercise discernment. You do, you must. 
always exercising discernment. Whenever you hear any preacher preach, there's something you must always do. See if what they're saying accords with the Bible. Like those Bereans who searched the scriptures daily to see if these things were really so. Is this the truth of the Bible? Well, we've already seen that one mark of a Christian is that they're in full agreement with all that the apostles taught. And they're in full agreement with what they taught about the person and the nature and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that can help us. How can we know that that's us as well? It's all very well for John speaking to the people in his day. They've still got an apostle in front of them. What about us 2,000 years later? Well, let me tell you, that's why creeds and confessions are so important. <coughs> Some of you think, creeds, confessions? Some of you think, oh, creeds, confessions. Let me tell you, they're one of the greatest gifts outside of the Bible that God has given to the church. Why? Because we know through those documents, what the church of Christ has always believed. First century, second century, third century, fourth century, 16th century, 17th, 21st. God's preserved those things for us. We know, we know, we know, we know. This is the truth. That's what they believed. This is what we believe. We haven't wandered. We haven't strayed. We're still in accord with them. You do not need to doubt what has long been believed by true believers concerning Christ. They wrote it down. Wonderful summaries of doctrine and truth. Wonderful summaries of interpretation of the scriptures. Taking it back to the word we see it's true. Fills us with confidence. They fill you with confidence. This is the ground on which I stand with all the saints who've gone before. There will be some areas of disagreement within churches and denominations, things like baptism, exactly how and when should that be administered and how exactly are we to understand spiritual gifts, the, the structure and the workings of church polity and government, all those interesting things like that. But if we're fully agreed on the person and nature and work of Christ and on the doctrines of grace and how it is that a sinner is saved, well, we discover the vast majority we can embrace as brothers and sisters in Christ. Even, even with those other differences, they're holding fast to these central gospel truths just as we are. But John takes it further, as we've already seen in verse 6. Those who know God give evidence of knowing God because they are those who take heed to the teaching of the apostles. Once more, knowing what it is that we're to hear is simply a matter of opening up our Bibles and here it all is recorded for us by God in his word. You can read for yourself what it was the apostles taught. I hope you do that and do it regularly. That's what Christians do. And we can know what the apostles 
how the apostles in the past have been understood and interpreted all through the centuries. I've already mentioned the written material that's been preserved, not just in creeds and confessions, but in letters and in journals. We can read them. You can hear preachers making reference to them and quoting from them. That's what they believed then. This is what we believe now. You know that you haven't strayed from the truth. You haven't been taken in by falsehood. And when you hear these things being taught and affirmed, you know this is reliable, this is trustworthy. And there's a very real sense of agreement with these things in your own soul. Why? Because you are a Christian. And you can know that you're a believer. That's what John is bringing to these believers. You can know you are in Christ because of all of these things. But if you're someone who thinks you know better than the apostles, if, you, if you're someone who thinks, ah, we've moved on from the apostles, uh, you've moved into dangerous ground over here somewhere. Not of God, says John. Not of God. And finally, in verse 4, we have the most reliable and trustworthy guide of all, and that's the Holy Spirit, in verse 4. You're of God, little children, you've overcome them, because he who is in you, the Spirit of truth, the Spirit of Christ who dwells in you, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You have a comforter and a helper who will lead you into truth, and he is greater than all of those voices out there who would have you think something different. The one in you is greater. Now, this verse is much quoted, isn't it? He that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. I used to sing a chorus when I was a lad to those words. It's used as a slogan to be applied to many different things in Christian experience, that phrase. It's often used to stir people up to see that they can live a life full of victory, untouched by the world's troubles and difficulties, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. What most people forget, what, po what most people don't even know, is the context in which John used that phrase when he very first said it. The context for that phrase, is that through the work of the Holy Spirit in you, you can discern false teachers and false doctrine. That's the context. Because you have the Spirit of God within you, who is the Spirit of Christ and the Spirit of truth. And he will teach you and lead you and guide you. There are things out there going on in the name of Christ. But they are of the world. They are not of God. The Holy Spirit will convince you. Now it is correct to say that that phrase in verse 4 does have wider application. But it's interesting to note its original context. You don't need to feel or be intimidated when people come along preaching another Jesus or another gospel or when they suggest that there are other proofs that you need to show that God is at work in you. They are of another spirit, says John. They are of the world. They are not of God. 
that you are and you can know that you are. And because you are, you're enabled, you're enabled to discern between a spirit of truth and a spirit of error. Little children, says John, you can know. He wants you to know that you are of God. Are you?